Good morning. Ben and Christy and the kids are uh, are not here this week. Ben is normally the, the guy you see in the pulpit, and uh, and they are up north in Cincinnati, I believe, this week. They're uh, they have two children that are uh, visually impaired, and they're going up there to uh, do um, an assessment with some doctors and uh, and look at possibly doing surgery this week. And so it could be a real long week for them, uh, but. Um, they, uh, they're excited about the opportunity, and so this morning as we begin, I'd like to pray for them and also pray for uh, Steve Lawson over at Grace Community, so let, let's begin in prayer this morning. God, what a great privilege it is uh, to sing your praises. God, what a great privilege it is to be able to, to look at, you know, 95% of what we sung this morning, and that it's about these things that we eagerly anticipate, these things that we haven't really seen yet but that we know are are in store. God, to be able to come together and have perfect unity in Christ and praise you is a privilege, and I pray that we would never look at it as anything less than that. I pray that we would never come here uh, unexpected. Uh, I pray that we would never come here thinking that uh, it's just another Sunday morning and we're going through the, the motions. God, every time we gather for worship, our desire is that you're glorified and that you're honored. We know that's why you created us. As we talk about that this morning, uh, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would communicate clearly the truth that you desire to communicate. God, we pray for uh, Steve Lawson this morning over at Grace Community. And uh, I'm just thankful for him and for his friendship and for just the, uh, the great attitude that you give him. And uh, always a, a joyful person to be around. And I pray that as he uh, teaches this morning that, uh, that you would be preparing the hearts and the minds of those that are he- there uh, to listen and engage the truth that he shares. And I pray, God, uh, for his marriage. I pray for his family. God, we don't, we don't just pray for these to go through the motions and, and make sure that we do this once a week. But, God, we really know that apart from you, there's no hope of success in ministry or uh, truly being able to glorify you in anything that we do. And so I just beg that his time with his family would be sweet. pray that uh, as a daddy, he'd have some sweet time with his children this week. And I pray that he's been undone by the word this week as, he is, uh, as he's sharing that with his body. Also pray for Ben and Christy and, and, uh, and for Evan, Luke, and Daniel as they travel this week. God, I pray for safety as they travel, and I, um, I pray for wisdom for the doctors. God, as they get there later today and they go through the assessments on what surgery needs to be done, I really pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and insight, and I pray that you would give the doctors um, just a mind that has the best interest of, uh, of the kids at heart. And so I just pray that uh, there would be no... Uh, no uh, hurdles there, God. I pray that it'd be a smooth thing. I pray it'd be a sweet time for their family as they're together for this whole week up up north. God, again, uh, we know that apart from your work and apart from the moving of your spirit and the enabling that you give us in grace and mercy, that that we can't do anything good. We we can't do anything in faith, and uh, and we're lost sinners. And we praise you this morning uh, for who you are. And God, as we look at some of the things that you've done, I do pray that you would speak to us clearly. Uh, God, we thank you for the uh, allowing that you give us to come before you and let our request be made known. And we pray uh, above everything that your will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 this morning. Um, the, uh, when Ben gave me the opportunity, he, he said, you know, there's an opportunity for you to, to teach uh, on Mobile Sunday, which, by the way, I just want you to know the school district was so nice to let us do the custom paint on the walls this morning so y'all would feel... Welcome, 1984. Um, 
Looks good. Brings me back to fifth grade. Kind of want one of those little pizzas. I've been craving one all morning. Um, sorry, that was not in my notes. Um, the, uh, uh, he said, you know, you have an opportunity to, uh, to teach. And all I could think was what would happen in my church growing up when the worship guy would get a little overzealous and, uh, and start sharing. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. The worship guy would maybe set his guitar down and, and begin to teach, and there'd be things like, oh, that's cute. He's trying to be a pastor. Look at him, you know, or, or oh, someone forgot what his job is, or shut up and sing, whatever. Uh, and all I could think was, I think I've even uttered those words at one point as a foolish little kid who was just doing what I saw other people do. And so um, this morning, I just, uh, I'll just put it right out there. Apart from Christ, I have absolutely nothing good to say to you. There's nothing on my own accord that I can bring and just say, hey, look what I thought of. I have nothing good to say to you apart from Christ. And so this morning, we'll be digging into the scriptures, and we'll be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Uh, before we do that, uh, I, I want to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork um, of some things that are communicated in the previous chapter. I'm intimidated by this podium. This thing is massive and cedar and strong. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, some things are communicated. And something that I want to share before we begin this morning is that 15 to 20 years from now, I'll say 30 so no one gets their feelings hurt, uh, pretty much everyone in this room will not look near as good as you look now. With the exception of my beautiful wife, who I love very much, who gets prettier every day, (laughs) everyone in this room will likely not look as good as you look now. Why is that? It's because our outer nature is wasting away. Um, Some other examples that that I saw of that this last week were I used to be able to run a mile in six minutes. Now when I just run, there's a burning in this area here that is overwhelming, and my calves cramp after about a block, and, uh, and, it's, and it's because my outer nature is wasting away. Uh, we were at Splash Kingdom with the youth this last week, and uh, Steve, I'm going to pick on you. Steve Mayo was going to read something, and he sits down. You know, everyone's comfortable. they got their stuff laid out. He picks up his book and kind of does this business here for a couple minutes, and, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the car. I've got to grab something. So he puts his shoes on and hikes across the parking lot just to get his glasses so he can read. Why is that? Because our outer nature is wasting away. Um, I almost didn't share this, but I think I will. We all have grandparents, right? Funny grandparents. But my, my great-grandmother, the older she got, the crazier things she would say, and it was humorous. I mean, there, there was one time we're sitting there as a family, and she just, she would just be saying things. And we're like, where in the world did that come from? There's one time where it was like, hey, uh, how you doing? You know, and I asked her a question. I don't know. I was at the bar this morning. I was like, <laughs> did anybody else know great grandma was at the bar this morning? Or is this news to anybody else? And, uh, you know, hearing loss, vision loss, the slowing of our minds, the fact that in 30 years we'll all be a little more wrinkled and, and uh, things, all those remind us that the outer nature <coughs> is wasting away. <coughs> that can be depressing. It can be sad. It can be humorous. Sometimes we have to be humorous to get over some of the sadness of that. And it can be confusing. But what I want you guys to keep in mind this morning as we look at what God is going to show us in 2 Corinthians 5 is that that's not all there is. Yes, our outer nature is wasting away, but that's only part of it. And what we get to look at this morning is a huge privilege. As we're worshiping, man, the words that we're singing, singing of this place that's being prepared for us and singing of these glories that, that we sing of but we haven't really seen yet, uh, is a huge privilege. And so this morning, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to be. So I'm going to read those now. 2 Corinthians 5, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be using them. I'm not going to try and impact the whole thing, but we'll 
Look at some verses. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found we if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Today, what we're going to look at is what the mind of the worshiper is supposed to look like. Go figure. I'm going to talk about worship this morning. It might seem like a cop-out, but we're sticking to it. So we're going to look at the mind of the worshiper this morning. And the mind of the worshiper is such an important thing. It's not that we can go through certain actions and certain things and show up on Sundays and then whatever we think about is our own business. The, The way that our mind works and the things that should be familiar to our mind are very important. So this morning we're going to be looking at the mind of the worshiper. Uh, Ben's closing quote from last week it was from John Owen. I'm sitting there listening to it just thinking, oh, that is perfect to just intro into what we're going to be diving into this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. His closing quote was this from John Owen. There's a little uh, language in here that's not familiar, but just go with it and don't laugh. Um, it is a woeful kind of life when men scramble for poor, perishing reliefs in their distresses. This glory of Christ is the universal remedy and cure, the only balsam for our, all our diseases, whatever presseth, urgeth, perplexeth. If we can but retreat in our minds unto a view of this glory and a due consideration of our own interest therein, comfort and supportment will be administered unto us. So what we're going to be looking at today is the way the mind of a worshiper is supposed to work. We're going to consider the things that should be familiar to the children of God. So here's my hope for today. And I've thought through this. I was writing out what, what kind of our goal is. And uh, I better not get too far in front of the speakers. Uh, I was writing out kind of what our goal is, and I just kind of started laughing because it seems a little ambitious and lofty. But here's my, my hope for today. I hope to help you and encourage you to set your eyes on something that I'm certain you cannot see and to set your mind on something that I'm certain you cannot understand. And I hope to do that having never seen what I hope you will set your eyes on and having never fully understood that which I, which I hope you will set your minds on. Is anybody else confused yet? <laughs> yeah, I was writing it. I was like, wow, that's what we're doing this morning, God? Are you sure? Because that sounds confusing. I'm going to go through it again. What I hope for you this morning is that in the encouragement from these scriptures is that you will be able to set your eyes on something that we can't see yet. So that's what you're going to be setting your eyes on this morning. So y'all pray with me as we do that. And, and what I hope you're going to set your minds on is something that we really can't fully understand, but we know some things about. So that's the goal this morning. And by the way, I haven't seen him myself, and I haven't wrapped my head fully around it either. So it might seem lofty, but we'll get into it. Um, uh, in the ministry here at Crosspoint, um, our goal is, is to equip we don't have a, you know, when the, the, the children are out there, the goal isn't just to entertain them and keep them from screaming their heads off until we get done. The goal is to equip them. Uh, in the youth ministry, it's the same way. We want to equip students, but we also uh, want to equip parents to be able to be the first minister in the student's life and to have an open line of communication there. Sunday mornings, Ben stands in this pulpit, and he wants to equip the body. And we're being equipped for, uh, for some uh, pretty amazing things. And so, In order to properly equip the worshiper, which is what we hope to do this morning, in order to equip the worshiper, I must stress, I've said it and I'm going to say it again, the importance of the mind of the worshiper. You may have seen this coming, but turn to Romans 12, 
verses 1 through 2. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what's communicated there? What's communicated is this. Your created purpose, the reason that God puts you on this life, you've heard me say it before, I'll say it a million times again before I die, unless it's soon. Um, I, I want you all to understand your created purpose is to glorify God. God placed you on this earth to glorify and to honor him in everything you do, whether it's a high time or a low time, whether things are going wonderful, whether you're in the midst of horrible affliction, God has created you to glorify him. And what we see in these verses in Romans is that the mind plays a very, very important role. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So two things, will, one of two things will happen. If you are not transformed by the renewal of your mind, which takes place in digging into these scriptures and praying and leading your families in the scriptures, the transformation of the mind, if that does not happen, if you're not transformed by the renewal of your mind, you will be conformed to the world. We're not supposed to look like the world. It's supposed to be different. And it terrifies me how much a lot of what our lives are about don't look any different at all. And the truth is, is that God has created you to glorify him. And he's done it in a way to where you have to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or you will be conformed to the world. You'll look just like it. So we've got to have time digging. If you have a hard time digging into the scriptures, which, I mean, that's all of us all the time. We've got to be constantly encouraged and and, uh, and, and motivated and, and reminded of the importance of that, let that be a reminder for you. Let that be something that encourages you. You have to be transformed by the renewal of your mind or you'll be conformed to the image of the world. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 2. Uh, you don't have to turn there. Uh, you can if you'd like, but essentially what it says is that we have a new life in Christ, and because we have a new life in Christ, we're called to set our minds on the things above. So again, we have, do not be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3, set your minds on the things above, not the things that are here. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Y'all go ahead and turn there. It's just one page before our focus passage this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. In this chapter, Paul is addressing some things. He's had some accusations sent to him, uh, or that he's received, whatever. Uh, and the accusations are pretty much that your following is not as big as it should be if what you're saying is as important as it really is. So it's essentially people are saying, look, why aren't there, if this is so important, why aren't there more people? It's too hard to understand. And Paul's addressing some of these accusations. And so um, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5, he says this. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So first and foremost, he says, I'm not in this ministry just to you know, get a paycheck or do whatever. We have this ministry by the mercy of God. And because of that, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And check this out. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
Notice he doesn't appeal to their emotions. He doesn't turn it into a pep rally and try to get them all worked up to work towards the same goal. He appeals to their conscience. Why? Because the mind is important in the life of a believer. He appeals to their conscience, and how does he do it? By open statement of the truth. To everyone's conscience in the sight of God, verse 3. Even if our... this. If we said this, we would probably be looked at as though we were just mean people. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, lowercase g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So what you focus on and long for has great importance if you wish to fulfill that purpose that God created you for. He created you to glorify him. So what you set your mind on, what you focus on, what you long for is important. That's what we're looking at this morning. All right, now go back to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to walk through this. A little bit before it, in 4, 16 through 18, it says, just right above it, probably in your, in your Bible, it says, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. That's the other side of what we began with this morning. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Transient means lasting only for a short time, not permanent. Those are the things that we can see. Everything you see when you look around, all this is transient. It's here for just a snap of a finger. It's not here for eternity. So what does it say we are supposed to set our eyes on? The things that are unseen. And what do they call that? Faith. So our goal for the morning, uh, my goal, when it may have seemed crazy and lofty at the front to help you set your minds on something I know you can't see, that's what faith is. Faith isn't setting your mind on all the things you know and you can see and, and they're right here and they're tangible and I don't, have to, I don't have to take a step out on faith. That wouldn't be faith in that case. So to set your mind on the things that are unseen, which we're going to talk about more if it seems mysterious, um, and it'll probably stay mysterious, but to set your mind on the things that are unseen, that's what faith is. So I'd like to look at what this faith, the renewal, the transformation is supposed to look like. So look at 5.1. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The tent, the earthly dwelling, is not necessarily the earth. It's talking about your earthly body. Look at your hands, look at your fingers, feel your hair if you got it. It's talking about your earthly body. That's what we're talking about here. And so the mind, um, my mind, if I'm a believer, is not set necessarily on finding the fountain of youth. Man, don't even get me started on all the commercials and the crazy things going on for people to try and keep looking young. Um, the mind of a believer is not set on preserving the earthly body, rather the reality that when I die, I have a new heavenly dwelling made by God, eternal in the heavens. That should be encouraging to you. Now, this doesn't mean, well, if that's the case, I'm eating at McDonald's for every meal here on out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying be a slob. You're supposed to be a good steward with that which God has blessed you with. But I encourage you, if your focus uh, is, is on finding the next thing that keeps you looking young, that's not what believers set their minds on. It's okay to take care of yourself. But if that's your focus, if that's what you've set your mind on, then yeah, there's a problem. There's an imbalance there that needs to be fixed because we are supposed to set our minds on the fact that when we die, we have a heavenly dwelling 
a new body made by God, not by human hands, and, uh, and it's eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, 5 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. What does it mean to groan? Let me, I want to make something real clear. Groaning is not complaining. It's not in this heavenly body I complain all day long about how horrible earth is and I don't want to be here anymore. That's not what it is in the least bit. That's not what it is. To groan is different than to complain. Psalm 62, Jeremiah Burroughs in the Red Jewel Christian Contentment has a lot of great stuff to say about this. But Psalm 62 paints this picture that your soul is silent to God because no matter what circumstance he has you in, you're content because you know that he's placed you there for his glory and he will not just leave you there. He sees you through even the most negative circumstances in a way that you're, what the scriptures say, is more than a conqueror. You don't just barely eke by anything. God allows you to get through these things in a way that you're more than a conqueror so that you glorify him. You don't just eke by. And so there's a big difference between groaning and complaining. If, if you're, let this convict you, if you're a person that's always, you might have a happy smile, a clear, hey, yeah, I'm good, things are fine. And when you go home, if your mind and your heart is saying, God, I wish things weren't like this, I, I, this is horrible, and you're constantly complaining and vexing, why consider that your soul has a language that God alone can hear. And, and our hope is that we're so, so enamored, overwhelmed by this treasure that we have in Christ, that our souls are truly silent to God. So groaning and complaining are very different. So let's look at what the groaning is. Groaning implies a strong inward desire. It's used in Romans 8 in reference to our future glory. Um, I encourage you to read that at some point. Uh, I'd like to read the whole thing, but I was, uh, I'm not going to. Uh, uh, but read Romans 8, please. And it talks about our future glory and how creation awaits with eager longing, groaning. Uh, the Spirit intercedes with groanings. And then we groan, longing with this strong desire to be there. And so John Owen, he describes this, this as like, he says, consider a deep sigh as you feel the burden of something. This groaning. And what he explains is that, that this groaning is a, uh, a strong inward desire that has sorrow in it. Well, why would we have sorrow in it? Well, the sorrow is there because we know that we're not yet to where we're designed to be, that there's more to come, and we're not experiencing that. So in that strong inward desire, there's sorrow, but in the sorrow, there's joy. Why? Because we have an eternal hope of glory. When we set our minds on the things above, that means that no matter where things are right here, we know that there's an eternal dwelling for us that awaits us that we're about to talk about more, and I get fired up thinking about it when we sing the words that we sang this morning. There's an inward desire that we're to have that has sorrow in it because we know we're not where we're going to be, but that sorrow is filled with great, exceeding joy as a gift from God. And, uh, and so that's what the groaning is. Um, we also see in verse 2 that the groaning is coupled with longing. I feel a little bit like I'm going through an outline, like here's one point, here's another point, here's this verse, here's that. Let me encourage you. This is what the mind of a worshiper looks like. The, the fact that we're talking about this groaning and this longing, it's what you're supposed to experience according to the scriptures. My hope is that as I communicate this, that it would make us all better worshipers, more robust worshipers just feasting on this gospel and responding appropriately. Our worship, just a simple definition, is responding to God as he reveals himself to us. What God reveals to you is not lame. It's, it's not mediocre. What God reveals to you is amazing and divine. And we'll see it even more later. But I encourage you, we are designed to groan, and that groaning is coupled with longing to put on a heavenly dwelling. Longing to put on a heavenly 
dwelling. Okay, this might be hard for you to picture because we haven't ever seen it. It's something that awaits us. And so that's why I'm totally intimidated about trying to say, hey, picture this, even though you can't. We're longing to put on a heavenly dwelling, a dwelling that is in heaven, and that's what we're supposed to long for. We groan, and we have a deep desire that's mixed with sorrow that's filled with joy, and that groaning is coupled with a longing. So here's my question. What does it mean to long for something? What does it mean to truly long for something? Does someone have to remind you that you long for that thing? That's silly. That's foolishness. I, I, was, I was trying to picture things that people can, oh, oh I long for a spouse. I long for world peace. Uh, I, I long for um, a house. I long for children. I mean, what if someone, their, their big anthem was, I long for world peace, and you had to like break them up in the middle of a bar fight and say, I thought you longed for world peace. And say, oh yeah, I forgot. I do long for that. That wouldn't make any sense. That wouldn't make any sense in the least bit. Um, some of my good friends that led worship this morning, the Hamiltons, they've expressed that they long for a child. And, and they feel that God's leading them to adopt a child from a foreign country. How silly would it be, and I'm sure that Steph might elbow Aaron, but how silly would it be if you were just like, yeah, yeah, oh, paperwork. Oh, we got to do pa- paperwork? Oh, there's a lot of details? And 10 years down the road, you haven't even done any paperwork. You haven't gone through any of the details. You haven't looked at, like, when you're going to go to that foreign country and and, and preparing a house for a child. These guys have been working their tails off getting a home ready for this child and going through all this paperwork and sending it over and getting it translated. I mean, what if they were like, we long for children, and then you're like, so what's the process look like? Oh, man, I forgot to do that. (laughs) That makes no sense whatsoever. Why? If you long for something, you set your mind on it. If you long for something, you set your mind on it, and you're not easily distracted by trivial matters. So what is it we're talking about we long for to make sure we're on the same page? A heavenly dwelling is what we're talking about this morning. So if you long for something, you set your mind on it, and you are not easily distracted by trivial matters. We're we're called to groan and long for a heavenly dwelling. Look at verse 3. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, if we just take this at face value, it's not a good thing, right? Um, if we were just to take this at face value, uh, obviously nakedness symbolizes shame. There's a lot of things here that I was reading about, like the bodiless souls and all these things, and it gets kind of confusing, but if we just boil it down to its simplest point, it's not the main point of the morning, but it's, it's a point that needs to be made that um, to be found naked, that, that nakedness is a symbol of shame, unrighteousness incompleteness. And so what you need to know is that by putting on this heavenly dwelling, you are kept from that. Consider the shame that Adam and Eve experienced when they realized, "Uh uh-oh, we're naked. Consider that. To put on your heavenly dwelling is to be kept from that shame, from that unrighteousness, and from that incompleteness. Look at verse 4. This is where it gets really cool. Not that the other verses weren't cool. That sounds horrible. Um, Verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, in this heavenly body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. All right, we've already seen that the groaning that we're supposed to experience as worshipers is coupled with longing. So we have groaning, we have longing, and now we see a burden. Here's what we need to understand. A true believer is not burdened at the thought of being stripped of their earthly body. This is kind of the question that needs to be considered what does the thought of death do to you for a long time in my life it terrified me someone started talking about death i remember 
<laughs> wow, confession time in the pulpit. Uh, I, uh, I, I watched the movie Field of Dreams when I was a little kid. Fantastic movie. And, uh, and uh, I hope, I don't remember all the details now that I say that. Um, uh, but I remember watching it as a kid, an innocent little kid. And, uh, <laughs> and so um, the, uh, I'm watching it, and I realize like, at the end, there's this really touching moment where he's throwing the ball with his dad, but his dad's dead. And as a kid, I was like, oh, cool, man, they're throwing the ball. Wait a minute. His dad's dead. And then he walks back into the crops and just disappears. I remember as a kid, I was like, <laughs> I mean, I just I blew up. I fell apart because it was the first time I realized my dad's not going to be here one day. It was the first time I thought about death. And for years, it terrified me. The thought of death terrified me because all I could picture was the stupid movie with the dad walking back in the corn. And I'm like, that's a horrible movie. I don't like it anymore. So the, uh, the true believer is not burdened at the thought of being stripped by your earthly body. I encourage you in that. I don't want to say that harshly as though, oh, if you fear death, you're stupid. That's not what I'm saying. I'm hoping that you're encouraged because we shouldn't be burdened by that. The true believers are rather burdened to be further clothed with a heavenly, glorified, restored, sinless body. So our focus isn't on doing all that we can to keep what we got here. Our focus needs to be on this unbelievable blessing that we'll experience when we, re- we are further clothed in righteousness in heaven with a restored body. A lot of, this is a little side note. A lot of times we make decisions based on what's practical and what's safe. And so this huge spectrum of opportunity that we have to glorify God, we bring down to here because this is all that's practical and safe because we're trying to guard, be safe. Like I, I, we were, I was talking to Lindsay at one point. I was like, you know, I'd love to go to a foreign country, but I'm fine with it, but I don't know if y'all are going to be safe. So let's not even consider it. I mean, wh- how silly is that? So we have this range of opportunity to glorify God, and when we say, but I only want to do the things that are practical and safe, we bring that range of opportunity down here. Why? Because we're doing our gut-level best to preserve our bodies here and to not be put in harm's way in the least. The true believer is burdened to be further clothed with a heavenly, glorified, restored, sinless body. And there's a reason for that. Why? So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is awesome. What is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, uh, this is the greater thing that we're talking about today. This is the greater thing, this mortal being swallowed up by life. It's the greater thing that all of this, the worship and song, your daily walking, your discipling, your going to work, your struggles that you face, everything going on here is pointing to something far greater, the mortal being swallowed up by life. I'm hoping that when you hear the phrase from here on out, the mortal will be swallowed up by life, that you'll just be like, yes, the mortal's going to be swallowed up by life. And people are going to go, you're weird and awkward. <laughs> um, the, the mortal being swallowed up by life. This is what all this points to. When we worship, it's not the end of everything. It's not like, we worship, that's good. When Christ died on the cross, it's not like, oh, that's it. So y'all just got some time before, I don't know, a big bomb, I don't, I don't know, something weird, global warming going to take over. That's not it. That's not the end. It all points to something much greater. And this is where this all gets exciting. If this, if what you see was all that there was to set your eyes on, there would be no reason for hope. If what you saw when you looked around was all that there was to set your eyes on and your mind on, there would be no hope. There would be no need for faith because there would be nothing or no one to put your faith in. That's what faith is. 
That's what I want to encourage you in. Set your mind on these unseen things that await us eternally in heaven. This is the life of a worshiper. You're being prepared for an eternal time of worship. And it's not going to be boring. I used to be so scared that heaven was going to be boring. I was like, are you serious? Holy, holy, holy. All the time. And clouds. I mean, clouds are probably cool to bounce around on for a while, but come on. That's going to get boring. I had a very small understanding of what heaven was. Heaven's a much greater thing. We're going to be worshiping a sovereign, beautiful, glorious God and see him for who he is, which we'll talk about that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, our, hope is not, um, our hope is not that this would be swallowed up by death. We don't just hope that all that we see here is swallowed up by death. Because of Christ, our hope is that everything here will be swallowed up by life for the life of a believer, for the children of God, for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, consider what it means for the mortal to be swallowed up by death. There's this video game. I just thought about this. Uh, I shouldn't say this. I'm going to. There was a video game I used to play in my former days as a pagan. Um, it was uh, it's called Mortal Kombat. And, uh, and Mortal Kombat, like, I, I, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, Mom, Dad, what were you thinking? I'm like eight years old. I'm like, hey, watch this. Blah, I ripped his head off. How cool is that? Scary. That's terrifying. This, uh, the, the Mortal Kombat, what was the point of the game? Fight to the death. I looked up in Webster's Dictionary. What does mortality mean? This is what Webster said. I think someone over there is reading their Bibles. Of a living human being deserving of death, often in contrast to a divine being. Wow. That's pretty biblical. The mortality that we have is that of a living being deserving of death. In your sin, you deserve death, not life. That's what it means that Christ is a propitiation, a wrath absorber. Of a living human being deserving of death, often in contrast to a divine being. So, let's ask the question. What are we mortals prone to? I mean, y'all can, y'all can probably fill your head with a hundred things immediately. What are you prone to as a mortal person? Death, disease. Personalize this. Personalize what it is that you've experienced in your life. Death, disease, depression, sin, recurring sin that seems to grip you and you just can't get over it. Frustration, wickedness, divorce, Broken hearts, etc., etc. There's a long list of things that we experience here as mortals. All of these things will be swallowed up and done away with, but I want us to understand the blessing. The blessing is not just the absence of mortality, the blessing is not just, oh, there's, these things no longer exist. The blessing is life. Look at what the scripture says what is mortal will be swallowed up by life this life is that thing that we have never known yet we know partly of it we see some of it but this life is something we have never known or seen but it is exactly what i hope you set your minds and your eyes on this life this eternal life that's being prepared has no expectation or fear of death there's never a day where that life goes from bad to worse it doesn't happen why because the sin that you battle with in this life is atoned for by Christ Jesus. So I want to look at some more details of the life to come. Look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is what worshipers are designed for, what we're, what we're moving into talking about here. He that has prepared us for this is God, who gives, who's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, uh, God is preparing us for the life to come. He's preparing us for that. And God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. 
One of the questions that we always need to ask, you've heard Ben say this, this is what I do with the youth. One of the questions we always need to ask, whether we're studying the New Testament, whether we're studying the Old Testament, is where is Jesus in this? Where's Jesus in this whole thing? Okay, I get it. I groan. Uh, the inward desire mixed with sorrow, filled with joy. I get that. There's a longing. Okay, I, I get that. And the, this desire to be clothed in, uh, in your new heavenly dwelling. I get that. Where's Jesus in this? Y'all turn to John 14. Ben's going to be mad at me because he hadn't gotten there yet. I can't wait on him all day. John 14. Uh, he is scheduled to get there in 2013, in fact. <laughs> John 14, verses 1 through 4 says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Now remember, remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, where you heard Christ utter the words, my soul is troubled. He did that, he experienced that, so that he could say this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus, check out this beautiful, stinking picture. Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. Promises that when he gets there, he'll send the Holy Spirit to guide you, to help you before you get there. So Jesus is preparing a place for you. God is preparing you for that place in, in the Holy Spirit. Y'all see the full circle here. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus, is preparing you for that place that's being prepared for you. It's beautiful. I mean, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit working together, doing this amazing thing for a bunch of undeserving losers like me. For his glory. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his children, and he promises to return for them. God is preparing us for that place by way of the Holy Spirit. So those who have the Holy Spirit, get this, worshipers. Those who have the Holy Spirit are being prepared for their eternal dwelling. You're being prepared for your eternal dwelling. This is, all of this is not for nothing. You are being prepared for an etern eternal dwelling, which should just absolutely fire us up. So two questions I want to ask. When did we get the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? I'm going to share a long list with you here because we could spend months talking about what the Spirit does. Consider the working of the Holy Spirit in your life as I go through this. Acts 2 gives us this example of the giving of the Spirit. John 16, 4, and Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14 shed some light on these questions. Jesus explains that he must go to the Father, or else the Spirit, or the Helper, would not come to be with us. That's in John 16. I'm not going to read through all that, but I encourage you in the Shepherd's Guide, there's a point where, as families, you can sit this week and read through that and consider what's been done. He explains that he must go to the Father or else the Spirit or the Helper would not come to be with us. And the things revealed in John and the things revealed in Ephesians, which is, that's where their worth is. I'm not just making up a list saying, hey, this is what I think the Spirit does. It comes from these scriptures. This is in John and Ephesians and this list that I'm sharing with you. The things revealed about the Holy Spirit. One, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed. It's a guarantee. Two, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I want to take one second to talk about this. A guarantee of our inheritance. You're supposed to set your mind on your inheritance in heaven. Now, that might seem really selfish to y'all. If you have an old grandma who just has lots of dough, and she's about to kick the can and pass away, it's uncomfortable. 
it may seem selfish for you to be like, oh, I'm about to be in the money. And you start making a list of what you're going to buy. I'm going to pay this off, but before I do, I'm going to get this new car or something. It's usually how it works. And it's wrong. It's selfish for us to sit around and think of the death of a loved one and think, I set my mind on that inheritance. Woo, that's good stuff. I'm excited about that. Now we'll give some to the church, but uh, I'm excited about it. It'll be good. It's awkward to us. We're, we're not designed like that. Something inside of you says it is very selfish. If you hear a bunch of people sitting around and grandma's in the other room not doing well, and they're saying, man, this house is huge, man. I'm going to put this over here, man. I'm, I get the car. I get the ring. I, I've seen families do that. I've seen them have this unbelievably selfish conversation. And so it's weird for us, I think, to consider that you're supposed to set your mind on your inheritance. That glorifies God. That's a good thing. For you to set your mind on your inheritance above is what you're actually designed to do as a worshiper. To the praise of his glory. All things that God does is to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit works in our life for the praise of the glory of God. It says he helps us. He bears witness to us about God. Consider, are these, do you see these things happening in your life? He bears witness to us about God. He enables us to know truth. He convicts us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts us concerning sin because it's not possible for you to be convicted of sin without God. You don't, your true colors don't come out when you realize that's not right. Your true colors shine when you are in your sin. That's your state. You, you're conceived in iniquity, born in sin. Or maybe it's the other way around. Um, the, uh, you are not convicted of your sin because you reached down deep inside and found what you needed to realize this is wrong. If you have experienced conviction of sin, it's by the working of the Holy Spirit. God works that in you. God will convict you of that sin. So he convicts us concerning sin, and he convicts us concerning righteousness. Something that I learned this, uh, at camp with the youth, J.R. Vassar was speaking, and he explained something real beautifully, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'm going to try here. He said that your sin is clearly an affront to God. Your sin is filthy. It's wicked. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He's a just God, which we'll talk about in a minute. But your sin's filthy. Guess what? Your righteousness is just as filthy and disgusting to God. Your own pursuit of righteousness. Well, I do these things, and I have a little Bible study, and I do this, and that's righteousness. No, your righteousness is not Christ and something else. Your righteousness is Christ. Your righteousness is Christ. It says the law is the end of righteousness for all those who believe in Christ. Why? Because the law exposes that we're a bunch of sinful, continuous, falling into sin, wicked people, naturally. And so your righteousness is not what you can do on your own to make it look better, but your righteousness is Christ. Um, consider in the garden. What did Adam and Eve do when they realized they were naked? Sewed fig leaves together. Made some sweet little outfits. Uh, I never thought about this before until someone, I heard someone talking about it just within these last couple months. What happens when you take a fig leaf from the branch? It withers. If that's your only form of clothing, that poses as a problem. So what do we see there? What does God do? Does he say, oh, fig leaves, good idea. No, he doesn't say that. What does he do? Kills an innocent animal, and he clothes them the way they need to be clothed. Them sewing fig leaves together was a picture of them trying to do their own form of righteousness, and it was not enough. God killed an innocent animal to atone for the sin, give them the right clothing of righteousness. We long to be clothed in an eternal dwelling. I mean, this is just this beautiful picture that works together so beautifully. Um, 
It says he guides us into all truth. Not some truth. He guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit tells us what he hears from God. Get that. The Holy Spirit tells you what he hears from God. That's a pretty cool thing to have. He declares to us the things to come. That's one of the reasons we need to be setting our minds on the things to come. And he will glorify Jesus. Get this. This should humble us. He will glorify Jesus by taking what is his and declaring it to us. I want to take a few minutes to look at this mind of the worshiper before the giving of the Spirit for us now as we have the Spirit and then eternity in our heavenly dwelling. I want to look at what it was like in the Old Testament before the giving of the Spirit, what it's like for us now, and what it's, is there going to be a difference in eternity? Is it just going to be this in a weird cafeteria with weird walls that have been just wigging me out this whole time? Um, the Old Testament mindset of a worshiper. What I want to look at is these three different periods of time because I want us to understand what it means to be a worshiper. I want us to understand what the mindset is that we should have. And so let's look at what the mind knew, the Old Testament worshiper. What did they know? What do we know? What's the difference? And what's going to be the difference between now and eternity? So the Old Testament worshiper knows this. The Old Testament worshiper knows the shadow of the reality. Let me, hear, let me say that again. The Old Testament worshiper knew the shadow of the reality. Ben's talked about this before. Consider the Passover. Consider the lamb without blemish. Consider that it was fully consumed and a bone was not broken. Consider the 1,500-year sacrificial system that was this picture of righteousness has to be attained by atonement. 1,500-year sacrificial system. Consider the ordinances, the sacrifices, the ceremonial washings. Remember we read through Leviticus? It was like hard to read, much less consider that people actually did that because it was so detailed. All of those things were not the reality. They weren't sitting there saying, well, this is the reality. This is great. They were all there because what the Old Testament worshiper knew was a shadow of the reality, a shadow of things to come. Turn to Hebrews 10. I want you all to turn to that. Hebrews chapter 10. This is also in your shepherd's guide to be able to read through as families. Hebrews chapter 10. Check this out. Everyone there? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what does that say? The law, no matter how much you make those sacrifices, no matter how consistent you are in your washings and your sacrifices, it doesn't matter. It, it's not going to achieve what is needed to make perfect those who draw near. And what does it say? For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Ephesians 3, 7 through 10 talks about how this mystery that was hidden in the ages is revealed. So that mystery that was hidden in the ages, when, they, when it was hidden, what they saw was a shadow of the reality. Turn to Malachi 4. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. And this is the last weird turning bout I'll, I'll give you. It's on page 802, if you have ESV. If you don't, it's probably close. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. This is in the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The true saints knew that trust in the sacrifices and trust in the washings and trust in the ordinances was not enough. They anticipated the great day of the Lord. And in fact, we see in scripture those who said, yeah, this is enough, this is fine. They found out it wasn't. So the true saints knew this is not enough. They anticipated the great day of the Lord, the longing that we're supposed to have to have our heavenly dwelling put on. Now, let's look at the current mind. Hebrews 10.1 just called it the true form. So there's a difference. Old Testament worshipers, when they worshiped, it was what they knew in their minds was a shadow of the reality to come. What do we have? The perfect image, the true form. Turn to Col- I said I wasn't going to do that. Turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And that's the last time I'll have you turn. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is explaining Jesus. Now, y'all understand, I want us to be able to look at these things and say, in our minds, I am a worshiper, and my mind is supposed to be familiar with things and set on other things. We've looked at the Old Testament worshiper, knew the shadow of the reality. What we have now is what we call the perfect image of the reality, and it's found in Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 says this. He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. What we see as worshipers now is the true form. We see Christ, the true form, the image of the reality. We know where healing is found. Remember, we saw the anticipation of this, this coming day, and they anticipate the Son of Righteousness healing in its wings. We know where healing is found now. We know who the Savior is, and we know why he has come. But was the cross just the end of it? That's my question. Was the cross the end of it? No, because that 2 Corinthians 4 says that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So it wasn't like, okay, that's it. Again, just wait around until whatever happens. That's not what it is. Christ walked this earth, and what he pointed at while he walked the earth the whole time was a greater thing. He didn't just say, hey, this is it. He said, you know me, you know the Father. And he's pointing to the Father constantly in the way that he teaches, in the way that he shares, in the way that he loves, the way that he encourages. That's what we're supposed to do. A lot of times we share that people need mercy and grace as if that's the end of it. Like, hey man, you need Jesus, you need mercy and grace. You need mercy and grace. And I know people that they have this mercy, they have this grace because they prayed a prayer or, or you know, they made a decision and they say, I got mercy, I got grace. And I'll say, why do you need that mercy and grace? You'll get a blank face. I don't know, but it's good that I have mercy and grace. I'm saying, you're right. It's good that you have mercy and grace, but that's not just the end of it. This all points to God. That's the point of the gospel. There's a book called God is the Gospel. The whole point of the book is that. It doesn't just end with mercy and grace, and that's it. It points to God and a heavenly dwelling that we have with him. We'll end here talking about our heavenly dwelling. 
I wish I had more to say about it. I haven't been there. Uh, there's some things in Scripture that are beautiful and they're revealed. And this is really what I hope you set your mind on. Consider these few things. Heaven is the reality itself. For the children of God, heaven is the reality itself. The Old Testament worshipers, what did they know? A shadow of the reality. What do we know here? We've seen Christ, the perfect image of God. In heaven, it's the reality itself. What will we be like in heaven? Well, we'll, we'll have no sin. We'll be in a glorified state. I remember when we were teaching through Romans with the youth, one of the questions came up was, wait, I'm going to be glorified? I thought it was about his glory. It is about his glory. And it's just awkward to think that we'll be glorified. We'll be in a glorified state, glorified bodies. Why is that? Well, because unless you are glorified like Christ, you have sin. And you cannot be in the presence of a holy God with sin. And so in heaven you'll be without sin. You'll be in a glorified state. You'll have eyes that can actually see the glory of God. Uh, what happened to most of the guys who saw the glory of God on the face of the earth? They just fell over. <laughs> just fell over like they're dead. Or went blind. Or couldn't talk for a while. Or just kind of wigged out. That's what happened to the guys who got a glimpse, a small glimpse of the glory of God. Some were only able to, they saw his back and that was too much to handle. In heaven, this is so crazy. I mean, I really want you all to think about this, but it's so, it's kind of mysterious because we haven't been there. In heaven, we'll have a full understanding of the fullness of the glory of God. You'll understand God fully as he reveals himself for all of eternity and you respond by worshiping him. Every time you utter, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you will have a new reason for it that will blow your mind. You'll never be like, man, let's change the tune. You'll have a new reason that he's revealed to you about the riches of his glory, and you'll worship him for all of eternity. Not a long time. I mean, when we've been there 10,000 years, Bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Once we've been doing it for 10,000 years, responding to the glories that he's revealing to us, it's no different than the first minute. We've no less time. For all of eternity, that's how you'll be responding to God. John Owen uh, says, I just read a book by John Owen. It was really good, so I've got like three quotes from him. Anyway, he explains that the vision that we will have of Christ in heaven will be chiefly intellectual. The vision that we have of Christ in heaven will be chiefly intellectual. It is not, therefore, the human nature of Christ that is the object of the heavenly vision, but his divine person. Our goal in heaven isn't just to be able to see Jesus as he was in the form of man and really understand him fully. That's part of it. You will have new eyes that will be able to see perfectly and behold glory. But it's not just a physical thing. It is a beholding of the divine nature of God for all of eternity. If that's not clear, that's okay. I encourage you to continue to set your mind on it. I encourage you to consider I will be responding to a sovereign God who reveals the fullness of his beauty to us constantly for all of eternity. And it'll never, what does that mean? If it's for all of eternity? It means that his glory never runs out. It's never like, oh, uh, we'll just start over. It's been tens of thousands of years. Y'all probably don't even remember the first year. He'll never have a need to say that. His glory is eternal. The riches in Christ are infinite. That's what we're to set our mind on as worshipers. When we sing songs, we should never sing them with empty hearts. When we come together for corporate worship, when you are worshiping at work in the way that you serve, it should never just be kind of this going through the motions thing. We should have our hearts and our minds set on our eternal dwelling, even as it's hot in this room. 
because I just saw like 50 fans. Like, whoosh, um, we should have our minds set on the eternal dwelling. That's about as far as I can go in the explanation. Uh, our eternal dwelling uh, is a beautiful thing. The beauties are infinite. And um, that's about as far as I can go in the explanation of it. But this is what I urge you to set your minds on. Know that whatever is going on in your life points to a greater thing. No matter what's going on, no matter where you are, let it point to a greater thing. It points to a perfect union with God in heaven. If you're experiencing great success and happiness in life, you should know that there is no real joy apart from Christ. If those joys are outside of Christ, it's not joy. If you're experiencing those things, you should know there's no real joy apart from Christ. What you are experiencing, no matter how great it is, does not even begin to compare with that which awaits you in your heavenly dwelling, which I hope you are longing to put on. It doesn't even compare. No matter how great you think your life is, it does not even remotely compare to what awaits you in your heavenly dwelling as you behold the glories of Christ for all of eternity. In fact, uh, the greatest that this world has to offer is rubbish. Scubula, some have called it, compared to that eternal dwelling. If you're experiencing the opposite, let me encourage you. Let it point you also to that thing which is greater. If you've dealt with death, depression, recurring sin, sickness, wickedness, brokenheartedness, you name it. You might be in a valley. If you're in your greatest storm, let it point you to Christ. Let it point you to Christ. Let it guide you Godward knowing that in your afflictions and perplexities and your undesirable circumstances, the power of God is made known to many. When bad things come around, it's not just bummer. Maybe next week will be better. God chooses to use fragile and common vessels to communicate that the power belongs to him. So he uses common fragile vessels whose outer nature is wasting away. Your outer nature is wasting away. That's what he uses to communicate his power. How does he do this? He does this by renewing your inner nature and preparing you for a heavenly dwelling. I hope that fills you with joy. I hope it, you know, weirds you out. I hope it fills you with joy. I hope it leaves you saying, man, I want to know more about that. You're being, as your outer nature is wasting away, your inner nature is being renewed. And so my encouragement is you set your mind on the things above because that's what God has encouraged us to do in the scriptures. There's a futility in this life that God has designed so that you do not continually set your mind on. A lot of times when things are bad, that's all you think about is how bad things are. But because of that, you don't set your mind on it. What do you do? You set your mind on the things above, on your eternal dwelling in heaven. I have begged God to make it so that your spirit and my spirit will truly groan with a deep desire that's coupled with sorrow but filled with joy as you seek to glorify God on this earth by living a life of worship as you set your minds on the glorious riches that are above. You're created to glorify God. I encourage you to set your minds on the things above and consider the amazing riches, the amazing things that he has done for us when we are completely undeserving. Let's pray. God, you're, uh, your riches are infinite. The glory that you'll reveal to us is something that we've only seen a small part of now, and I hope that we would be undone by it. God, when we consider that Jesus has said he's going to prepare a place for us, and when we consider that you are preparing us for that place, and we don't deserve it, my prayer is that we would live lives that glorify you. 
You have designed us and made us for the purpose of your glory. Not about our comfort or our worldly ease, but it's about your glory. And so I beg of you, Lord, to convict us. I beg you to help us, as you've promised in the Holy Spirit, to set our minds on the things that are above. God, my prayer is that the worshipers that fill this room would always be intentional and wholehearted in their worship. And I'm not just talking about worship in song on Sunday mornings. I do pray that's intentional. I do pray that we come ready to worship, to engage this truth. But God, I pray that every single part of our lives that we would know and be just totally blown away by the fact that you have created us for your glory and you've designed it so that we can live in a way by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can glorify and honor you proceeding in faith in everything that we do. God, I thank you for the heavenly dwelling that you're preparing for us. I thank you for that which we have no idea of what it is. And I thank you that you tell us to set our minds and our eyes on it, even though it's still kind of mysterious. But I pray that we would anticipate it. I pray that we would be biblical about the way that we live and that you have shown us that we are supposed to set our minds on the things above as we seek to glorify you here on this earth. God, we love you and we praise you and we count it a great privilege to know your truth and to have fellowship with you in Christ this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.